Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. It's Friday morning, back patent day. Glad you decided to join us for the last day of the week as we head headlong into what I hope is a nice long weekend. Yeah, I know Monday's not a holiday. Here's to hoping that you could figure out a way to kind of lengthen your weekend because we all need as much weekend as we can get. This is Tony Bean, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as the Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And what else do I do? Well, I'm interim pastor over there at Five Forks Baptist Church. In Simpsonville, we meet at 10.30 every Sunday morning, and you're welcome to join us. If you don't have a church home, come by, visit, see what you think. It's a great church, and um, you get to hear me preach, something I really don't do here. We talk about stuff here. Um, I preach on Sunday mornings. It's a big difference. You can come see what that's all about. All right. Um, big deal in the dance. You know, uh, you, you had the March Madness, the NCAA dance last night. Furman beat Virginia. That's number 13 seed beating the fourth seed. You've got an ACC perennial champion going down to the Southern Conference champion, which was just pretty much amazing. Furman won 68-67 to in a barn burner. And guess who the pep band was? It was North Greenville University Crusaders. Because it turns out that the Paladin band had an invitation to be in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day. And so they couldn't accompany the, the basketball team to the NCAA tournament. So because the band director at, um, at Furman is a North Greenville University grad, he picked up the phone and called North Greenville University and said, would you guys, would you guys be interested in being the Furman pep band for the NCAA tournament? And the band director said, absolutely. And so they suited up our Gamecocks, I mean our Gamecocks, they suited up our Crusaders in Furman, um, you know, colors, and off they went to play for the Furman Paladins, which I, I just thought, I think that's a great thing uh, to be able to work together. Here's, here's the story that's posted at Furman University. At the end of January, the Furman Paladins men's basketball team was on a winning streak, and if they kept it up, they'd have a chance to make it to the NCAA tournament for the first time in 43 years. But if the team made the tourney, they'd be without the pep band, which was scheduled to play in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day. You can't play in the NCAA tournament without a pep band. Drew Ingram, Senior Associate Athletics Director for External Affairs, picked up his phone and called Gary Roden, Director of Athletic Bands at nearby North Greenville University, would North Greenville's band play for the Paladins? Absolutely, Roden. Uh, absolutely, Roden is a Paladin alum. He graduated twice from the university with a bachelor's in 2011 and a master's in 2017. He said Sue Samuels, for, uh, Furman director of bands, is terrific, and the band director community is tight, and so he was happy to help. Plus, there were obvious upsides for NGU students. Sorry, I got that backwards. The director at North Greenville is a Furman alum. So as Division II school, NGU students don't get a lot of chances to go to events like this. He said, my first thought was that this would be a fun time from my, for my students. The bands from the two schools got together and practiced 
The NGU learned the uh, musically challenging Furman fight song, the Paladin song. Then Roden said Samuels handed over the reins. The combined band is made up of 21 NGU students and seven Furman students who didn't make the Ireland trip. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, Furman looks like they're gonna they're gonna pl- they're gonna be around for a little while, at least for another game, which you, is you tomorrow. Yeah. I wonder if this pep band is gonna stick around for the game tomorrow, or will the other one well, be back from Ireland? I don't I don't know what the schedule is, but I know that I mean I'm sure the band will stay for the game, if if the if it's tomorrow. I don't know, you know, it, when the what the schedule is about the the band as as far as coming back from Ireland, but. Uh, what a great way to cooperate. Um, I mean, I think it's just a, a good thing that, that uh, you know, that's going on between those two universities. We're so close, just up and just down the road from each other. And uh, uh, very different philosophically. I mean, let's just, North Greenville's very, very conservative. Furman is not. But when it comes to sports and athletics and you when you can work together, you find ways as institutions to work together. And I think that's a good model maybe for the rest of us to stop stop yelling so much at one another and maybe find ways to come together to do things where we have common interests. Um, Homeland Republicans are turning up the heat on Mayorkas, and the main reason is because the Border Patrol chief gave what many are calling earth-shattering testimony. Ortez testified in McAllen, Texas, at the first committee field hearing. You remember the Republicans went down to McAllen to check out the border for themselves and to get testimony from the people that are working there. And the Democrats said, ah, it's a political stunt, so we're not going. So uh, the, the Republicans are down there. They took testimony from Border Patrol Chief Raul, Raul Ortez and, um, and he basically just answered. I mean, it was when you say earth shattering, a lot of times people think, oh, there was there was this complicated question. He gave a long answer that was intricate and revealing. And well, actually not. I mean, basically, the question was, is the it, um, is their operational control of the southern border? And the answer from Mortez was no that they don't have operational control. And, of course, that's what Mayorkas said when, when he was at the hearing. He touted the fact that the Biden administration has control of the border. Everybody knew that was false. I mean, it's it's not like when you say earth-shattering, sometimes that can also mean that you know, there's some fact that's been covered up that now all of a sudden has been revealed. I don't think anybody thought that the border was operationally secure. I mean, all you have to do is look at the numbers. It's obviously not. It's porous. It's wide open. And so it's just been confirmed by the Border Patrol chief. You know, he's the guy. He's not the politician that's got to go up and do the dance for the American people. He's the guy that's got to take care of his Border Patrol agents, try to staff it correctly, and try to slow down with the tools that he's been given, which is almost nothing from the Biden administration, try to slow down the influx of Ill- illegal immigrants. And it's it's just there is no operational control of the border. Um, 
here's here's a statement. It, it's just in five of nine southwest border sectors, we've seen an increase in flow, and that's caused a considerable strain on our resources, and really has forced the border patrol to move um, to to move agents and even migrants to some other areas. He said in response to a quest, question about the border being secure. And in, in an interview with Fox News Digital on Thursday, Chairman Mark Green described those takeaways as huge statements. Quote, I know that he was the kind of guy that would shoot straight and be honest, and we prepared. So, so we did our homework, and we were prepared. I think you put the two together, and you got what we got, which is some pretty earth-shattering stuff. Well, again, I'm not, I'm not sure how earth-shattering it is for people to wake up today and go, oh, the Border Patrol chief says we don't have control of the border. I mean, I guess it's earth-shattering that he would admit that. Technically, Mayorkas is his boss. So you've got the Secretary of Homeland Security, and you've got the, the chief border control agent at odds with each, with each other. Which one are you going to believe? Uh, how about the Border Patrol chief, who's down there every day, who sees what's going on? who's willing to tell the truth about it instead of distorting to the American people to give the Biden administration cover. So kudos, big kudos to Ortiz, who was willing to be honest about the border. He's willing to help Republicans understand exactly what it need, what needs to happen. He says that the, the wall has got to be completed, that where, where the wall is complete, that it, it is a deterrence. And we, we know this. I mean, look, common sense, folks. Let's get back to just thinking about things linear in a linear fashion with common sense. Put up a barrier, a formidable barrier. It keeps people out because they have to cross the barrier. Even if they find a way to do it, it slows down their progress. And if you've got devices that alert Border Patrol to their presence, then they know where they're trying to cross the border and they can stop them. It just makes sense. Okay, um, folks, the, the library board is getting steamrolled. We're, we're back to talking about common sense. You know, we talked about it the, at, at, when we're talking about the border. It's just common sense that a barrier slows down immigration, which is why so many people who want open borders are opposed to putting up a wall. They put up out all, put out all these excuses saying, oh, you can just get around a wall, you can tunnel under it, you can blah, 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 whatever. Um, and the reason they say all that is they don't want the wall to be built because they know full well that if you have a formidable barrier at the southern border, that will assist you in getting control of the border. Now, again, I, on this radio program, you've heard me a lot of times talk about the fact that I think there needs to be immigration to the United States, but it has to be orderly. It has to be uh, based on some type of philosophy or program that allows us to control the numbers because we, we have to gain control, functional control, or as Republicans and Chief Border Patrol Agent Ortiz says, operational control of the southern border. So that's just common sense. Let me tell you another piece of common sense. Don't put sexually explicit material in the children's section of a library. Okay, can we can we boil this story down? The Greenville News is pounding away front page story again today about the library board. They're putting pressure on these people 
to back off of a common sense stand. And that common sense stand is you don't put sexually explicit explicit material in the hands of minors. You put it in the if you're going to put it anywhere, you put it in the hands of adults. Let the adults make the decisions about how much the minors get to know about this sexually explicit explicit material. Now hopefully the the adults are going to be responsible and realize that minors don't need to be dealing with sexually explicit material, but that certainly should be in the control of the adults. It you shouldn't just take these these books, these with sexually explicit information and pictures and illustrations and diagrams and put them on, a, on in a place that is reserved for children's books. I don't know why this is hard. That's not censorship. That's not LGBT, LGBTQ hatred. It's simply being reasonable. We're not talking about, you know, going outside, piling up some LGBTQ books and setting fire to them. We, we, could, we could have that discussion, but that's not what we're saying. We're simply saying if you're going to have these resources, put them in a place in the library where they're not easily accessible to children who don't have the ability yet to be able to discern what they're looking at. It, it's, you know, we our culture is so decadent. We have become so desensitized to any kind of morality, any kind of decency. I mean, this is not this is not a hard question. This shouldn't have, this should have taken all of 10 minutes. Uh, hello, uh, excuse me, uh, board members. Should we have sexually explicit material available for children in the library? Oh, oh, you're opposed. How many opposed? Unanimous. Okay, let's move these books over here then. Mission accomplished. But of course, if you have an agenda which includes influencing children toward transgender behavior and normalizing sexual deviancy, which is what we're talking about here. I, you know, I'm, I'm tired of, of messing around with this stuff. I mean, I, I really am. Where are, where, where are you Greenville? Are, are you telling me, are you telling me that a majority of people that live here in the upstate think it's a good idea to put sexually explicit material in front of children? Stop being afraid. Don't be afraid of people that are going to criticize you over this. I mean, just just stick with common sense and the truth. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be, you know, in anybody's face. You just, you have a question put before you. Where does this material belong in the library? Oh, that? With those pictures? With that? With the, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, it needs to be for adults over here because children don't need to see this. Nothing wrong with you saying that. And yet, I, I think people are, are cowed. I think they're afraid. And I know it. I mean, my goodness, people can say terrible things about you and they can come after you. But, you know, we've got a moral obligation here to protect our children. If, if, if we're going to, if we want to uh, flood the, the area with explicit sexual material that adults, are, are going to be privy to look um, that's a whole different argument let let's let's get this argument settled let's at least get to the basics where we say that this is not a place for children to have that things for children to have and then we can get into the broader discussion 
about what is this doing, this kind of material doing to our culture at large. But here's this is Greenville News. Listen to this. In a forceful rebuke to the Greenville County Library System's embattled Board of Trustees. See, you see all this language? Oh, we're coming after them. They're feeling the pressure. We're turning up the heat. These embattled trustees, they don't know which way to turn. We've got the advantage. We've got them on the run. Lost boys, we've got them on the run. That's from the movie Hook. So, you know, nearly a dozen people spoke out Tuesday night. This is, this is Friday, by the way, and they're running this story again today. I mean, a similar story today. What's the purpose of this story? Is this informational? You've already got the information. This is designed to persuade, to pressure, to let these library committee members know we're watching your every move. And if we don't, if, if people on the other side of this that think it doesn't make sense to put sexually explicit material in front of minors, if, if you don't begin to show up and make your voice heard, call, write, do something, then I'm telling you, these, these folks, these good people who were asked to do a job that, again, should have taken all of 10 minutes, are going to get steamrolled. This is what's happening here. The comments made by community members and library system employees at Greenville County Council's monthly citizen communication forum follow outrage toward the Library Board's Materials Committee, which on Monday advanced a proposal restricting children's access to books with transgender characters and themes. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. If you see the pictures in these books, in which you, I, I mean, you would understand why people would suggest, hey, put this over in the adult section. This is adult material. Marcy Moston, a materials committee member, spoke in favor of the proposal calling children's books with transgender themes life-threatening for our youth. Now, that was this past week. That wasn't last night. Last night, apparently, they had a... Um, uh, let's see, Monday's proposal. No, 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 this is still hearkening back to the meeting on Monday night. I thought maybe there had been another meeting. Susan Ward, president of PFLAG Greenville, which is an advocacy organization for members of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies, described her comments as a shockingly transphobic rant. No, it's not. Don't let people label you as transphobic because you think that material like this doesn't need to be in front of children. Don't don't let people call you tell you that it's shocking when you simply stand up for something that is common sense values. Nobody's attacking anybody here. This is not an attack against the LGBTQ community. This is a common sense discussion about what material is appropriate for children. And, and it is an indictment, in my view. I, this is not, I'm not attacking, I'm, I'm not belittling. I'm just simply saying that when any group of people, whatever their label, you could take the LGBTQ label off of them. But, but whatever their label, when a group of people stand up and say it's appropriate to put sexually explicit material in front of minors, then I've, I've got a problem with that. That's an indictment against those people. They're adults, and, and they're pushing an agenda that they want to have for children that is inappropriate. And they're willing to ignore the fact that we're talking about children so that their agenda, their items can get in front, can be advanced. Because I'm telling you, 
This is how they win. They call you names. They label you. They come after you. They get they get very nasty. And we're most people are just not like that. We're not accustomed to having somebody come after us in that manner. And you know, <laughs> I I don't I don't know what to tell you except in a community we if if everybody will stand together, then we can we can stop this kind of thing. And again, I, I'm I'm not I'm not talking about burning books. I'm talking about where you put them in the library. See, if we were if we were talking about taking these books out of the library, making them totally unaccessible, getting rid of those books from the library, then you might have a censorship question. I mean, I, you know, um, we we used to you when you walked into like a magazine store, which I don't even know if these exist anymore, but if you had pornographic magazines. You had to have some type of cover that covered the the you know just you just you just see the name of the magazines rising up above like a brown paper cover because you you, you couldn't have the pictures that were depicted on the front of the magazine just right out there for everybody to see. You know this this is it it it's just simply putting standards in place that says. We need to protect this group of people from this information until they're old enough to process it and make a decision about it on their own. And then we can lean into that debate about the decision that they need to make. But they don't need to have to be making it as minors by having this material just readily available for them. That is, that, that is not censorship. That is common sense. Those materials are still going to be in the library. They're just going to be in a place where adults maintain control. That's it. Okay, two weeks from today, we're going to wrap up his radio talk portion of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam, and a new show is going to begin on Monday, April 3rd. The title is going to be Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And uh, so we're going to continue the show. My plan, although it is not... Uh, we hit a little speed bump, but it's it's not yet feasible, but still working on it. And still my plan is to uh, go live with the website uh, probably next week, and that would give us a little about two weeks for you to be able to look at the website, see some stuff that's up there, um, and then get ready to use that website to find the podcast, uh, to be able to... Uh, access this show. I'm going to be on in the mornings from 7.30 to 8.30 instead of 7 to 9. We're going to cut the show back to an hour, and I'm going to pound away on probably about three stories, and then that is going to become a podcast that will be available. You can download. You can um, uh, subscribe to the podcast for free, and it would be, uh, I mean, it, you know, be a great way to listen to the program. You can listen to it anytime you want to. So I hope you're you're going to do that. I hope you're planning on continuing to follow the show. Um, I'm going to be down in Charleston this weekend at uh, the Vision 2024 event being put on by Palmetto Family, and I'm going to be serving as one of the master ceremonies for the event and also uh, interviewing uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, and I'll be interviewing Senator Lindsey Graham from uh, South Carolina. Most of the rest of our guests are going to be speaking from the platform. A couple wanted to do primarily interviews, so um, we'll be doing that this weekend. But the lineup is incredible. I mean, it's 
we really do have a great lineup. Ambassador Nikki Haley is going to be there. Senator Tim Scott is going to be there. Vivek Ramaswamy is going to be there. Um, he's, of course, running for president. He's two of the three declared pres- uh, candidates for the Republican nomination. Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy are going to be there. So you can hear what they've got to say as they seek the White House. We're also going to have a very popular senator from Louisiana, John Kennedy, very popular senator from Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn. Um, and we also have Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, as I said, Asa Hutchinson. We just added Congressman Mike Rogers. Um, a lot of folks are familiar with him and will enjoy hearing him. So this lineup, it, it, the doors open, I think, at 12, um, 11.30 or 12. I think it's 12 noon. It's at the Charleston Event Center. Um, and it's, you know, tickets are available. You can go to palmettofamily.org. That's palmettofamily.org. And right there on the homepage, of course, you'll be able to purchase your ticket. Um, so we, we've, we still have some tickets left. So if you want to, if you want to come, I mean, I know a lot of people are like, well, it's Charleston. Yeah, but it's middle of the day. So you, you can leave about nine o'clock, get down there in time, uh, for the event. The event's going to wrap up about 535 in the afternoon. And then you got time to get back home on a Saturday night. So, uh, it's just a nice day down in Charleston, plus you get to hear a lot of great speakers. So I hope you'll go to the website. It's, um, again, palmettofamily.org, and you can, um, you know, purchase your tickets there. Hey, you got two people running for president and two people that are probably also for- formally ran. Uh, Lindsey Graham yeah. and Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. Both ran. Well, and then you got some that are likely gonna, going to run this time. We know Asa Hutchinson is testing the water. He's been to Iowa a few times. Right. And, of course, Tim Scott, Tim Scott. Is, is a possible presidential candidate. So, yeah, it's going to be great. Um, we did, as I, I think I told everybody the other day, we got a, we got a hard no from Ron DeSantis. He's not going to be able to come. But uh, in, in any event. Uh, it's still going to be a, a, a great day. So if you can come down, I hope you'll join us. Today's St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I've got plenty of green on today. I got my camo stuff out. I got green and brown and, well, yeah, there's some green on there. And then I got some green on my hat. So uh, just you might want to know if you're getting ready to head out the door to go to work, uh, you might want to put on a little green so that you don't get pinched. If there's people around that still do that kind of thing, I don't, you know, I doubt in the world that we live in today, anybody's even going to get close enough to you. They're either going to be afraid that they're going to get COVID or they'll be afraid that you're going to sue them or they're going to be afraid that they're going to get charged with harassment. So you probably don't have to worry about getting pinched anymore. That's a, that's kind of a thing of the past. But a little bit about St. Patrick. He's the patron saint of Ireland. He's one of Christianity's most widely known figures. Uh, what's interesting is that he was born in Great Britain um, to wealthy parents near the end of the 4th century, and it's believed that he died on this date around 460 A.D. Uh, Although his father was a Christian deacon, it's been suggested that he probably took on the role because of tax incentives and that there's no evidence that Patrick came from a particularly religious family. But at the age of 16, he was taken prisoner by a group of Irish raiders who were attacking his family's estate. They transported him to Ireland, where he spent six years 
in captivity. And while he was in captivity, he worked as a shepherd outdoors, away from people, and he turned to his religion for solace. He became a devout Christian. He, he didn't turn to religion. He turned to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, he began to have dreams about converting the people of Ireland to Christianity. He made it. He escaped, went back to Great Britain, got trained, and um, for took about 15 years to prepare, and then went, went back to Ireland as a missionary. And a lot of people in Ireland came to know Christ because of the work of St. Patrick. Now, the church, the Catholic Church, never formally canonized him, so he's kind of become known as St. Patrick by tradition over the years. And it's kind of ironic that most people celebrate St. Patrick's Day not by going to church, not by thinking about the fact that it was Christianity that uh, swept Ireland because of the mission work that he did, but uh, they drink green beer and get sloshed. I mean, that's that's kind of the Patrick St. Patrick Day tradition nowadays. But if you want to really celebrate, um, you can think about the influence that St. Patrick had on Ireland uh, from a Christian perspective and how morally that helped develop Ireland as it developed into a, a country. Um, and and th- those are, that's the real legacy of St. Patrick. He also didn't get rid of all the snakes. Uh, you know, that's a, that course is a legend that just morphed over time. Uh, that, and you'll hear that every now and then. Somebody's going to say to you today, oh, St. Patrick, didn't he get rid of all the snakes out of, out of Ireland? No, uh, there are still snakes in Ireland, and um, he didn't get rid of them all. So, sorry. 888-660. Oh, we don't have this. We still got a couple of minutes here. I thought we were right up against the break. Um, so, again, don't pinch anybody today. That's, just, that's old stuff, and that'll, that'll probably get you in trouble. Uh, let's see here. Now it's too long to talk about that. Oh, here's some, I, th- I thought this was interesting. Uh, not only is it St. Patrick's Day, but yesterday was the birthday of one of our most famous founding fathers, and we didn't take any time to talk about it. Should have, uh, but I, I had a lot of stories stacked up yesterday that I needed to get to. But yesterday was the 272nd anniversary of James Madison's birth. There's a great piece at Daily Signal today by Representative Mark Green talking about maybe more than any other founder, Madison is to thank for the structure of our government. It is because of his dedication and genius that we have the separation of powers, um, um, that we have a proportional representation, that is the Senate, the House, you know, more House members based on the size of the state, everybody in the Senate gets two senators, a more sort of a, a, a more equal representation. And then the larger states have more influence by having more legislators. And, and so it's a, it, it, the bicameral legislature that we have now uh, of the two houses are greatly because of James Madison and his influence. Um, and, of course, that's under threat today. Uh, We've got a federal bureaucracy that takes legislative, executive, and judicial power unto itself, and that's a threat to representative government. So we need to celebrate James Madison, his contribution to uh, to American history, and of course he was he was an amazing president. Uh, If you get a chance to to go 
uh, tour. Uh, his his mansion, his his home. It's an it's an incredible place. It's it's a beautiful place. Um, I've never been, but I've I've seen pictures and I've heard people who have been there. Uh, it's something that I would I think I would really enjoy. One of these days, I'm going to get around to it. By the way. Um, Montpelier is James Madison's home. Monticello is uh, Thomas Jefferson's home, and they're pretty close together. If you can go and stay in one place and kind of go back and forth, so that might be a a good family trip at some point. Since we were talking about them earlier, I thought I'd throw that out there for you. Philip's on the phone. Philip, go ahead, please, sir. Good morning. Hello. It seems to me rationality has taken a fall, and we are now celebrating irrationality. In banking, anyone who knows banking knows that banks make money because of the research of risk managers, uh, people who go out and look at markets and see what is good to invest in. Well, now, uh, because of wokeism, they go out and look for companies that are woke, they're diverse and all of this. So making a dollar is no longer as important as this overriding woke obsession. And that's in school, teaching morals and teaching good uh, uh, ideas to children is no longer number one. It's to uh, uh, teach this new agenda. And I really fear for this country because, again, it's like a rational idea that is gone now. Yeah. It has to be allegiance to this mantra at all costs. Yeah. No, that's um uh, that that's excellent, uh Philip. I appreciate your call and your observations. Look, the banking crisis is not directly linked to woke um ideology, but there were, I mean, for for example, when you go back and look at Silicon Valley Bank, they were without a risk officer from back in uh, a risk assessment officer from from back in August, but they had a diversity officer that was working full time, and they were doing all this stuff to um, promote uh, same sex attraction and transgender issues and the whole thing. I mean, from drag queens, you know, from from. The, from the whole LGBTQ alphabet. So they're promoting all this at a time when they didn't have a risk assessment manager in place. So it's not that it's not so much that they went out and invested in risky endeavors that were more woke than they were financial, financially sound. It was that they didn't have anybody paying attention while they were doing all this woke stuff. They didn't have anybody paying attention to the banking decisions that were being made, which were 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 very bad. I mean, they, you know, it, it on the surface it didn't seem that bad. You invest in government bonds that have always been a safe investment, but again, if you're paying attention to what the Fed is was saying, you realize that you were buying bonds at two percent. And that the Fed was about to raise interest rates, and when they raise interest rates, your two percent bonds, you're not. If you have to liquidate them, usually they you set those bonds up for ten years, five years to ten years. If if you're going to have to liquidate them in order to to gain capital to be able to pay your um, depositors, should you have a run on the bank or any kind of emergency, you're not going to be able to dump those bonds because bonds are now paying four or five percent. 
and nobody's going to buy the 2% bond from you. So they couldn't sell enough bonds to cover the amount of people that wanted to remove money from the bank. If you remember, I told you they had about uh, a third of their total liquidity was uh, withdrawn by depositors, $49 billion. And they just couldn't cover, you know, banks don't have, and as we talked about on the program, stacks and stacks of cash sitting behind um, a vault. You know, this, this is not the days of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where if they can just blow the vault, they can get all the money. The bank's money's out in investments. They loan that money out. They invest in businesses. Uh, they put the money out in the bond market. And once the high-tech businesses, they, they began to need more capital because as the uh, demand for tech, uh, high-tech uh, goods and services began to shrink, then they had to have they had to have more money that they borrowed to capitalize their investment in the business, and the banks because they had short, sold short, um, they on these bonds. I mean, they'd gone out and gotten these low interest bonds, and they were had invested a lot of money in them. Now, a, a risk assessment manager, you may say, how would they have made a different made a difference? Well, risk assessment manager would have been paying close attention to what the Fed was saying about raising rates. They would have analyzed that the bank's position was precarious because if in order to to beat inflation, the Fed starts raising raising interest rates a quarter to half a point. I mean, they were you, you, you know, they were raising rates half a point at a time, which is is very aggressive. And that caught the Silicon Valley Bank, short on cash. Customers found out about it. They made a run, and the bank collapsed. And some of the same things happening to the uh, Republic Bank in San Francisco. But there's been about six big major banks uh, that have kicked in $5 billion each to give $30 billion in liquidity to the the bank in San Francisco that was also in danger of falling. So we don't know if that's going to be enough, but that's actually a private uh, sort of a, um, you know, a free market solution. It's not the government stepping in and giving them that money. It's these six banks that recognize, even though they're a competitor, that everybody's going to be hurting if a panic starts, a true panic on all of the banks. So some of these major banks have kicked in to try to help rescue the uh, Republic Bank. Okay, Gene, thanks for calling. Very quickly, I I don't know, are you aware of the uh, celebrations they've had for Ruth Bader Ginsburg yesterday? Uh, I was not aware. Neither was I until I heard uh, something on the radio uh, last night. I I should have put on NPR, but I didn't do it. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on here, but um, the Department of Justice, the FBI, all these uh, blue state uh, um, attorney generals had Ruth Bader Ginsburg on her day. I, I don't know if it was her birthday or what it was. Yeah, well, I they're, don't... They're, they're trying to make a, a real uh, a mythological character out of this woman, as if, she, if she's like uh, Miss Liberty and Justice. Yeah, well, I know. Look, the left canonizes her. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No, well, I agree with you. I, I'm not a – thanks, uh, Gene. I'm not a Ruth Bader Ginsburg fan in any sense of the word, but, I mean, she is a she is a heroine to many on the left. The, the one thing she did, though, that they just 
despise her for is that she died while she was still a Supreme Court justice. I mean, and that gave President Trump his last swing at the Supreme Court. So Amy Coney Barrett comes in and and to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And many, a lot of people have been trying to get her to retire. So, uh, you know, pre-Trump getting elected uh, so that that seat would have been, would stay progressive. But uh, she, she refused and, uh, you know, Trump got an opportunity as he was going out the door to put in Amy Coney Barrett. So it, it actually solidified the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. But yes, I mean she's considered to be just the the heroine. They they've there there was some place I was reading and I can't even remember now where they put up a statue of her that was just terrible. I mean it looks awful. And yet everybody was was praising it almost like it was some kind of icon to be worshiped. And believe me, um, progressive thinking is more than a philosophy. Those who hold to it are willing to do anything to undermine people who have a conservative philosophy. Those who hold to progressive thought are they they believe just like Marxists and Marxism teaches that if you lie to advance the Marxist cause, then you're really not doing something that's that's bad. I mean it's it's perfectly acceptable if you need to tell a lie to the bourgeoisie in order for the proletariat to gain the advantage. I mean that's and and so um you know, it almost becomes a religion. It beca- the the tenets of progressive ideology. I mean, you've you've got a sacrificial system in that you've got abortion. Uh, that becomes the, one of the sacraments for progressives, and 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 then you've got this idea that there is only one way that you can believe, and if you don't believe that way, then we're going to come after you. I mean, there there's some, and I I know. Uh, I can be really excoriated for this, but I mean, there are some similarities, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, between radical Islam and radical progressives, because both believe those that don't agree with them deserve to be just pushed out of the picture. I mean, Jane Fonda, think about Jane Fonda. Do you know Jane Fonda went on The View last week and pretty much said that if you needed to kill pro-lifers, that that was okay, that they, they deserve to be murdered. And she got a little pushback. I mean, the some of the other guests or hosts on The View got a little bit nervous because they were, oh, she's kidding, she's kidding. And all she would do is just sit there and give her the Jane Fonda stare. You know, it's uh, she acquired that when she was in North Vietnam sitting on an uh, armored vehicle uh, protesting the Vietnam War. But, but she was just, she would just give them the stare. And they got these people got really nervous because they were oh she didn't she doesn't mean that she meant it she never retracted it and so this is this is what I'm saying I mean it, what is the difference between a radical progressive coming out and saying pro life people deserve to be murdered if they're standing against um, abortion and a, a jihadist who comes around and says you know if if you're not if you're not part of Islam in the way that I am, then you deserve to to die because you're an infidel. I mean, both are philosophies that are being defended by somebody who believes that you don't have a right to live if you disagree with them. 